0: Welcome to the Center for the Advancement of Virtual Organizations podcast, Episode 2, Transparency and Operational Decision-Making in a State of Emergency. I'm Stephanie Menefee, and today we're joined by Dr. John Lanier, Provost and Chief Academic Officer of North Central University. Dr. Lanier, welcome and thank you so much for taking the time to come chat with us about decision-making and information sharing in emergency situations. We have some big questions for you, so let's get right to it.
1: All right. Thanks, Stephanie. Appreciate the opportunity to visit with you this morning.
0: So the global pandemic we're experiencing with coronavirus is forcing many leaders to reevaluate the ways they communicate with employees in emergency situations. Uh, We've been hearing a lot about transparency requiring a strategic balance in day-to-day operations, but we're kind of wondering if that goes out the window in a time of crisis. So to begin, we'd like you to tell us a little bit about the kinds of information senior leadership should focus on communicating to their workforce in an emergency situation.
1: I think that's a great question, Stephanie, and there's really two things that we think about related to information, not only the kinds of information we share, but also the modes in which we share that information. So in terms of kinds of information, we really focus on two broad categories. First and foremost for us has been what do you need to know to keep yourself and your family safe, particularly in an an event like the coronavirus uh, circumstances we're experiencing now? And for that, we tend to rely on information that's provided by scientists, doctors, and experts. Uh, the CDC state resources have been really good and reliable, and they are very geographically relevant uh, because we have so many people spread out. And then secondly, in, type, in terms of kinds of information, we try to focus on what do you need to know about your NCU experience, both for students and for our employees. So things like, are we operational? Should you expect changes to your experience in your classroom? Will services be impacted or suffer degradation because of the uh, changes that we're going through? Luckily for us right now, they're not because we're more used to being online. But those are the types or the kinds of information that we like to share. The other piece that I think is particularly relevant for us is the mode of communicating. And we try very hard to be multimodal here and tailor our communications to the variety of constituencies we have. So I've seen a number of places that rely solely on email, for example, and they often send just one email for everyone. In fact, in the last couple of weeks, uh, you probably have have gotten this as well, but I've received more coronavirus-related emails from organizations whose websites I may have visited in the past. And the importance of those messages that they're trying to send tends to get buried or disregarded in all the noise of of the multitude of these. So, frankly, in the midst of this, I'm not deeply interested in what Blockbuster Video's response to the virus might be. Um, So it's easier for us to kind of delete than to decipher and get to the real message. So we try to focus on specifically tailored messages that are crafted to address the concerns of each of our constituent groups. We use different modes of communication like email. We use our website. And right now we have a specific banner on the website that clicks through to coronavirus information. We post in our learning management system. We ask our deans to communicate directly with faculty. We ask faculty to make direct contact with students. We host Zoom sessions to add a personal touch and answer questions directly that are raised in those cases. Then we create FAQs from questions that we receive and we post them in a public place. And the variety of these approaches allows us to make sure that students, faculty, staff, all of our constituents hear the information that's most relevant to them, and it's accessible in a variety of ways.
0: Thank you so much. This is this is really great information. Um, you, you mentioned organizational-level decisions, too. So can you tell us what kind of organizational-level decisions you're faced with making in this type of state of emergency?
1: Yeah, we can. Um, because uh, we are globally situated now with students around the globe, with faculty uh, in a multitude of countries, we have really learned a lot about this on a steep curve. Um, we, we can be affected uh, by a broader number of disasters than many location-based organizations. So for example, hurricanes in Florida or in the Gulf Coast or the Southern uh, Seaboard We've got community members who can be impacted when there's tornadoes in the Midwest, earthquakes in Puerto Rico, wildfires in the western United States. Uh, we've even had a, a bomb threat at one of our physical facilities. So we've, we've really experienced a global uh, volume of, of these types of events. So we might have a smaller percentage of our community that is affected. We do have to define emergency broadly so that we can be prepared to, um, to, to manage whatever emergency experience our folks are having throughout the globe.
0: So how do you arrive at the particular decisions that you're making?
1: Well, we start the analysis of, of all of these decisions with student, faculty, and staff and their welfare as a central focus. So what's in their best interest? How can we contribute to their needs in their given circumstances? To be fair, um, not having dorms or classrooms filled with 500 students, it reduces our ability to dramatically impact the life and death circumstances that you might see at ground-based institutions. But we do know that life circumstances can impact what a student or faculty member needs or wants from North Central University. So we have a protocol that we follow and it's written intentionally, it's written broadly which allows us to tailor uh, specific responses to each incident and to uh, analyze the the facts to make decisions. So we'll typically evaluate a given circumstance, we'll gather as much information or feedback as we can about the event or the conditions in the specific location. And then we'll discuss with our leadership team how we should proceed. And while the leadership team is an important part of the decision-making process, we we try to incorporate listening to our students, faculty, and staff in the field, and we find that's equally important. This allows us to know not only what's happening, but what they need to hear and what they want to hear to understand what comes next.
0: So as you're taking in all of this information from all of these different avenues, do you have a particular um, uh, way that you're sharing the information? Is there a tree? Um, you know, do you, do you yourself pass it on to everyone or is there a designated team involved?
1: Yeah, so so we, again, we use a multimodal approach that I talked about um, earlier in terms of making it available in a variety of ways. But one of the things that we try to be very cautious about is determining what type of information we want to share. Um, oftentimes we see news reports that can be inaccurate. Uh, that come out early when there's something of significant importance happening. So we try to look for information that's been vetted by a trusted source. Governmental agencies, local law enforcement, as I mentioned before, the CDC and state governor's offices have been really tremendous sources of information for us now. And they can be particularly helpful for determining the information that's specific to a remote location that's uh, sometimes not even on this continent. But in addition to that, we want to promote um, uh, safety first, so getting the information rights is critical. We also want to promote emotional and psychological well-being, and sometimes that means sharing information uh, about available resources, not just news or advice. And uh, we like to provide opportunities for the affected population to share and for us to listen to them so that we can understand what they're feeling. And that has a couple of benefits for us. One is we learn what we don't know about their specific needs, and they are in the best position to tell us uh, on the ground what they're experiencing and what they need. But two, it allows our community to express their thoughts and feelings and their concerns, and we find that's a really healthy exercise for them, particularly in extremely stressful situations.
0: Do you think that there's a, a best time to share any of this information?
1: I think um, there is a, a best time, and it's probably all the time. <laughs> um, and with our multimodal approach, I guess the, the more accurate answer is as soon as possible, but with that caveat that you have to get it right. A speedy, incorrect message can probably do more damage than no message at all sometimes. So once we're confident we know the circumstances, and the information that we have is correct. We like to act as quickly as we, po- as we can, and we like to share the messages to the appropriate constituents in that multimodal fashion.
0: So this, is, this sounds like a fantastic plan. Um, do, do you have any tips for others who might be transitioning or trying to put together an emergency plan, um, you know how they might create one that works best for their own organizational needs?
1: Yeah, I, I have a variety of tips, and some of these will relate to uh, many organizations. A few are, are fairly specific to us, but let me walk through the ones that I thought about. Uh, I think it's important first to identify your constituents and ask yourselves are they segmented? For us, we've got faculty and students, or faculty and staff and students, and they might need to hear or receive different messaging. So you should ask yourself should they receive a common message across the constituents? Or do you need to segment that information depending on their roles or their geographic location or their teams or who they report to? And then I think the next step is to to determine who should contribute to the message that's going to go out to each of those constituents. Uh, Beyond the safety and welfare aspects, is there an operational message that needs to be delivered? Is there a technology message that needs to be delivered about what is available, what isn't available in a given circumstance? Is there a human resources or a benefits message, which there often are in these kinds of situations? And I encourage uh, others to make sure that you include the appropriate contributors to the message that's relevant to each situation and circumstances. In that case, I would identify who should craft the message and who has the authority to send it. Uh, Too many messages, which I've seen, can get uh, uh, to a point of inconsistency And it can undermine clear communication, which is really what you want in these cases. The next recommendation I'd make is to create a feedback loop for your message recipients. What do people want or need to know that you didn't think about in that first communication? Or what more do they need to know if their circumstances change, which often happens in in situations like this? And I would encourage people to use that feedback to share new or additional information. Now, before an emergency strikes, I I strongly recommend that organizations think about how to respond to uh, events responsibly using local services. So, for example, we have a protocol for seeking wellness checks when we have someone who is geographically dispersed that we may need to check on. And we can reach out to either local law enforcement or uh, first responders if we think that that's necessary. But we have a protocol for that. And I would encourage organizations who are thinking about moving this direction to talk to a variety of jurisdictional services to see what they offer, how they might be able to help in the event of a need, and then what information will they seek uh, so that they can assist you if something arises. The next thing I'd recommend is that you make sure your message can be received in an emergency situation. So for instance, we've had to deal with a lot of natural phenomena because we have students and faculty all over the world hurricanes, earthquakes, tornadoes, wildfires. Um, and in those cases, we found email often down. Website can't access it. Cell phone, no cell service. And a lot of our communications depend on the simple existence of electricity, internet, or cell service, which are often the first things to go when there are these types of emergencies. So I would encourage organizations to think about how you can provide information in a multitude of ways if and when these things either go down or are hindered or are limited for a period of time. And and related to that, I think synchronicity can be a hidden challenge. It's easy to mistakenly make messages available in real time in a meeting announcement on a phone call, uh, but obviously there are times when people maybe can't call in and, and hear that message live. So we publish policy that tells people where we'll post information that will be available when they're able to access it, and then we keep it up through the duration of that particular um, emergency so that folks can, when they get access to electricity or telephones, they can they can access the information that they need. And then lastly, I'd say I would conduct training. Uh, we found that policies and protocols only work when people are familiar with them and they know their role in those protocols. So I would walk through these things with the various departments who will be contributing to these kinds of communications to make sure that they know how to act and act quickly when their services are needed.
0: So understanding that things may need to change in a time of crisis, how far from your regular operational plan is your emergency process?
1: I'd like to think um, as a remote organization, uh, in a lot of ways, it's not that different than our ordinary practice. You know, we always want to provide clear information, uh, get information that's needed to the right constituents and provide it in multiple ways. I think the biggest difference is the urgency or the prioritization. So in emergency situations, we might be talking about information that needs to go to the front of the line, that gets prioritized above above other communications. And though it's not written into policy or practice, uh, I think NCU, based on our values, tends to focus on the human selves a little bit more than the operational selves. We know that in these circumstances, that uh, people may be in distress, they may be hurting, they may be frightened. And so we prioritize those aspects of the communications even more when we feel like our folks may be in in that kind of distress.
0: In a perfect world, we'd all execute these types of plans stress-free and seamlessly, which is definitely what we hope for all of our listeners. But should it be pertinent, um, do you have any advice for others in leadership positions for handling stress, uncertainty, and setbacks in a time of crisis?
1: yeah that's that's a really good observation. They're never stress free and and uh, seamlessly is a goal, but not always achieved. So um, what I would encourage others to do and we encourage our leaders is to exhibit the behaviors that you want your constituents to see and then to emulate uh, to their teams or to their uh, colleagues. Um, I will, I found that people will take the cues from their leaders about how they should behave in a given circumstance. And that can be good and bad depending on uh, what leaders' behaviors are. I'd also recommend that um, you listen carefully and consider the perspective of those who are most directly impacted. Um, again, this is why we try to spend time listening to understand the realities that our folks are experiencing because there's, Uh, Nothing like being on the ground uh, to understand the realities. Uh, Stress and fear are going to be part of the equation. Uh, So I encourage people to address it head on, talk about it, let your people uh, expose their frustrations, and then you can reduce it where you can. I'd also encourage that organizations provide as much transparency as you possibly can. I think authenticity in these difficult situations can buy you a lot of credibility. And in difficult situations, you need a lot of credibility, even more than you would uh, when you're not in crisis mode. And one of the ways that we try to to convey through our values that authenticity is having compassion and consideration uh, for the human aspects of our constituents. And sometimes that comes at the expense of the next quarterly financial report. Uh, but long-term, I believe that compassion and consideration will serve the organization well.
0: Dr. Lanier, thank you so much for joining us today in support of the Center for the Advancement of Virtual Organizations and for giving us such an in-depth look at your processes. We really appreciate your insights, and we know our listeners will benefit from your experiences.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm happy to contribute.